guy. What's up, brother? What's up, man? Uh, how you doing? I'm doing well. Oh, I'm so stoked to drop in. I was getting prepared for this podcast and uh, just so much came through, going through some of your content. I haven't had a chance to drop in with you in depth, which I'm really looking forward to this conversation and just moving forward. Um, I know you have a wide breadth of knowledge uh, to drop into. So let's drop in with some breaths, drop into the heart and see what comes through. Sounds sound? good. Sounds, Sounds amazing. Good. Cool. If you're listening to this, you can slow down, find some stillness and connect with Sky, connect with me, open your heart and join this conversation wherever you're at. And I just offer as you listen to this conversation and the words that are shared to really just connect with what resonates within your body and feel the conversation just as much as you're processing it mentally. So let's find some stillness. Let's close the eyes if it feels good, if you can. Begin connecting with the body. Feeling any sensations that you may notice. How's your state of being in this moment? Do you feel rushed? Do you feel stressed? Do you feel joy? Do you feel expansion? Just noticing. And bringing your awareness to your breath. Feeling how your breath moves through your body. Feeling the expansion of your chest on the inhale. What collapses on the exhale. into this energy center of love, of connection, compassion. As you breathe into your heart, imagine it opening. Imagine it's in a place of receptivity. Feeling the heart beat in your chest or See if you can notice it beating somewhere else in your body. And just bringing gratitude for this beautiful muscle, this beautiful energy center, this beautiful gift. Beating life force energy throughout our bodies. A place where we share love, where we share connection, where we connect with our intuition with our knowing, with our purpose. May you continue to listen to your heart on the journey ahead. You are guided, you are loved. Let's all take a few breaths together, starting with a deep breath into the nose. So exhale out the mouth. Again, deep breath in. And release. One more deep breath in. 
right. That felt good. Oh, I love that. Feeling connected. You know what's cool, Sky, is I'm just connecting with doing these these drop-ins and these meditations and, and how it connects to the, the quantum field. Like we're recording this right now, but also in this present moment, not in this moment, but whenever the person that's listening to this in their ears is also sharing in this moment with us right now because we've connected through this quantum experience and what a time to be alive where we can actually create things like this where we're, I mean, I can just imagine now everybody that listens to this podcast is in this room, but they're all in a different time and space. 100%, dude. And it's cool because podcasting is really unique technology because it's taking the things that make us most human and continued it onward as opposed to a lot of technology I feel like has tried to be abrasive to nature. You know, like two two of the fundamental things that humans can do is that we can we can tell stories and imagine worlds that that haven't existed. Like in sapiens, like they almost call it lying in some sense. Like we have the ability to imagine something happening in the future and then think about how we would react to it. And that was something fundamentally different of Homo sapiens versus the other homos. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and, and what I mean by that is like Homo erectus or Homo neanderthal. But the other thing is the ability to store information. And so that combo is really, really interesting. And podcasting allows for that, you know, this ability to imagine something that didn't exist, to talk for hours, to tell stories, think about how we would live our lives and then to store that in certain ways, writing, you know, it's just the continuation of that, that other people can access them in the future. Yeah. And it just merges that time space into like, again, just flattens it, yeah. which is wild. Wow. Yeah. Let's talk about podcasting and specifically as it relates to uh, this, this real accelerated technologically advancement that human society is going through, but also this collective shift. Like we're just in this big unknown. And I think a lot of things are shifting and I'm excited to dive in because I think you have a lot of perspectives on what's really going on in the world. Uh, and we'll see where it takes us. But how in your perspective, because you're involved in podcasting, right? Like you help podcasters and we can get more into what it is you do. But how has podcasting, in your opinion, really affected uh, society's culture and people's ability to to get information around kind of the propaganda and the mainstream narrative that we've been pushed. So uh, I have a background in marketing and advertising and we've been doing some sort of that in some way, some sort of like propagandist uh, for almost as long as I can remember. I was at an engagement party this weekend and one of our vice principals, he had had some kind of like really strange, like bullshit administrative thing where they're trying to cut people and they had put him on like furloughed him. And so his wife reminded me that I had taped up around campus, all of these images of photo of him and said, have you seen this man? And just put it around campus, just like bring acknowledgement to the fact that there's a space missing. Who's really loved by students. This is back when you were in high school? Back when I was in high oh, school. Okay. Yeah. So it's like something I've always been thinking about. <laughs> this is a bit of part of I mean? who you are. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so following that path a little bit, uh, 2013 was a really, really interesting time because, you know, Bitcoin is really starting to happen, which was a huge fundamental shift in reality. But also it was a time when this idea of social media marketing and social media advertising was really coming online. This was just before the Instagram acquisition, just before the attempted Snap acquisition, Facebook was starting to be very, very profitable. And there was this whole movement that content needed to be shorter. You know, we had all of this, uh, all of this propaganda coming out saying how 
the attention span of humans is you know less than a goldfish. It's decreasing, blah, 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 blah. You must make shorter, shorter, shorter content. And the reason you have shorter content is you can put more ads into it counterintuitively because you can book in both sides of the advertisements. It's very engaging and then boom, ad. So you're kind of riding the high of the entertainment straight into an advertisement, mm. which is what you want as the advertiser. And this thing called podcasting comes along and it does literally the opposite. You know, ads are just in the front. You can skip them easy. You don't need like your DVR extra device to be able to skip it. Just skip, 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 skip. All the advertisers are actually products at the time that the hosts use and like. So you get this host endorsement. So you're actually feeling like you're being recommended something. You know, if you go back to early Tim Ferriss days, like 20, 2015, whenever he recommended a product, like when he sh- told me about Four Sigmatic for the first time, I was like, mushroom coffee? Coffee without the jitters? What is a lion's mane? Like, let's fucking go. You know yeah. what I mean? It was like this really exciting time. That We can talk about how that's changing a bit, but podcasting comes along and it does everything the opposite and yet it still works. And the reason I think it still works is because it's a fundamentally human experience, which is, it's the campfire experience. Mm. You know, we talked about there are people right now listening to me say this and they're not in the room, but they kind of are because mm. they can feel like they're flying in the room. We're talking as if it was just you and I. Because that's what we've always done is talk story, you know, mm. share experiences, share wisdom. And it's wild because we have been converted to think that we don't have the intellectual capacity to do that. And we've been taught that and we have been sold that. But if anything, the growth of podcasting proves to me that we do and we're thirsty for it. Mm. How has podcasting impacted your life personally as far as being able to to learn, grow? And I mean, just being on the wall with really intelligent people that are talking about things on the cusp that you don't necessarily hear in the mainstream, like Joe Rogan, Tim Ferriss, like you talked about Aubrey Marcus, like listening to those podcasts and then people, these guys that are really intelligent, successful, and they're talking about some concepts that I'm like, oh man, that resonates so much, but I've never heard that before. And so it, it gives validity to these kind of fringe concepts that we haven't been taught, you know, growing up in school and um, all this stuff. And it's just, it's interesting to feel how podcasting, like what if there was no podcasting? Like what if there was no Joe Rogan? Like where would we really be, right? Dude, I think it would be a really, really sad world. And this is the reason why, and this is why I always push podcasters to do longer podcasts and to do multiple a week. And there's two reasons why. Rogan has had an impact. Tim Ferriss has had an impact. And these people, even just to take my example, is I was, I diverted from my life path or where I thought my life was going to go. I was in Indianapolis working for a big pharma company, had a ton of really close friends but it was super out of alignment in what I did with like my time and what I did for money. Mm. Very out of alignment. I've maybe taken, you know, NSAIDs, like Advil, ibuprofen, like maybe 10 times in my life. Like I've taken almost zero pharmaceuticals, Mm. which is wild. Like luckily I've been really healthy. I know there is a place for them. They can definitely be helpful, but it's just not my jam uh, and not my, like my father's jam either. So and then in that place, I was feeling very kind of lost, confused, got up to like 235 in weight, usually I rock around like 185, mm-hmm. drinking like tons of beer, just this whole existence and started having panic attacks, like stuff that was just very out of alignment. I wasn't feeling as courageous, excited. It was a lot of like fear, insecurity, like scarcity. And then, and then all of a sudden, one of the five people I started spending the most time with was Ferris or was Rogan or Aubrey, were these people who, they were literally in my head almost as much time as anyone else that I actually interacted with. And what that did is it gave me permission to start to pursue the path that I wanted to be on. 
and to become myself. And I've, I've watched this happen. You know, I lost 50 pounds in six months doing a lot of Tim stuff. I was like, holy, like that's insane that I actually have the ability to take control mm. and to feel empowered by these voices. And they become one of the five people you spend time with. Because, and that's why, again, why I push people to kind of go that direction, because you can become that to anybody who, who will consistently listen. And all of a sudden you're in their head. They know you, you're one of the five people they spend the most time with. And if you can help them just by example, they're not preaching anything, right? They're mm. just doing, they're just living, they're asking questions in the way they want to be. But I know people who've gotten off heroin just because they listen to Rogan. Yeah. And when people love to like demonize him and I'm like, oh my God, you have no idea. Like how he, influential how, he actually yeah, is. Yeah, and how positively influential. Like mm. if, if he really was as alt-right as a lot of the media wants him to, wants to believe that he is, then the capital would have been taken. You know what I mean? If Rogan got on <laughs> like the thing the truth, and it was like rallying the troops, you know, this audience is like a bunch of dudes with guns. Mm. Like instead of like a bunch of like QAnon dum-dums, like it would have been serious. But of course that's not what he wants because he's not that. He's not what you think he is. Mm-hmm. What's scary is they're actually pushing him more that way especially with a lot of the COVID stuff. Like they push him that direction. And luckily he has like the wherewithal to not become the monster they see him to be. Mm-hmm. But it was definitely an interesting time. Yeah, he's, he did a really good job of, of staying so grounded and not, like we talked about before the conversation, this concept of the pendulums mm-hmm. and getting lost in the pendulums. And Joe did such a good job of not getting sucked into it and yeah. staying very neutral and grounded. And it wasn't until I think the ivermectin thing when he finally felt like, holy shit, they're, they're actually trying to decredit me and... Uh, defame me and all this stuff, and he actually took a stance. But he did such, he did it such a good job, and like it's it's fascinating to connect with. Like, does he does he know? Like, has he always known? Because he's been kind of a conspiracy theorist before he started the podcast, mm-hmm. right? And it kind of he stopped talking about a lot of the really out there stuff, and then he just started having conversations with people and asking the right questions. And yeah. it kind of took him out of the I have opinion about this. Like he has an opinion, but he always kind of stays in the middle and just asks the the questions. Um, which is really powerful and the importance of not getting lost in the pendulum. Because if he would have just been like really defensive and gone swung this other way, like it would have caused a, 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 a lot of issues and what would have happened. Dude, you know what's interesting is that during that time period from like the moment the ivermectin thing came out until it kind of cooled off a bit, like I think it was like two or three week time period, he did mushrooms every single day. Wow. Yeah, he said that on his podcast recently. Like, that's hilarious, but also probably was helpful. <laughs> <laughs> With him, like, healing from COVID or just going through that psychological, like, just the weight of The all weight of, of all yeah. of that. Just, like, being open to it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Oh, man. it's To it's, not build that resistance. Like, that was probably helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> oh, man. That's nuts. Um, let's talk about the, you know, with podcasting, everybody... You know, me included, it's like this, the, the, the early adopters, like the Joe Rogans and all that stuff. And now it's, it's something that everybody kind of has a podcast. Everybody's trying to have a voice, but not everybody is like breaking through or can break through. So what's your perspective, even with, with social media, this is what I've seen and I have resistance, like Instagram, these things, like it's fascinating to witness over even a couple month time frame how things like shift, like the collective narrative and what people are using it for and the content that's being created. It's a real... Uh, it's a way to really keep a pulse on where kind of pop culture is and where people's minds are at and what they're talking about. And well, this kind of leads us into the multiverse thing that you wanted to talk about of because I'm like Instagram has such incredible algorithms. I'm actually only getting content that I look at and like and follow and the people and then the, the relatable content. So it actually starts narrowing my own bias into my feed, but then also everybody, so it's like a two part question. We can talk about that, but then also this, 
this desire of, of everybody to have a personal brand. Everybody's vying for attention. Everybody's using Instagram as like the Instagram coach and having the answer and trying to make money. And it's really cool because like the light side of that is like this creator economy where everybody has the opportunity now to really, and especially with like the blockchain technology and how that unfolds of like owning their data, owning their content, making money, monetizing it, which is a beautiful thing. Um, but then also this shadow side of, of getting lost in like trying to compete with the algorithms and wanting to be seen and the egos that get involved in that. And everybody wants to like vie for attention. Uh, I know there's a lot in there that I asked. I don't know if there's a question, but I'll let you riff on it. <laughs> Dude, there's so many things that I'm excited <laughs> to talk about from that. Okay, so so I think that the tools that we use, it's weird because we build the tools and then the tools build us. Mm. Ooh, say that again. So like we we build the tools and then the tools build us. So if we just like abstract that away from how we built social media algorithms, there's a really like cliche saying it's like when you have a hammer everything becomes a nail but it's super true because again as we build these different tools they then allow us to only build within the parameters of those tools so if we never built the wheel and if we built some other frictionless thing we probably wouldn't have had roads if we wouldn't have roads we probably wouldn't have had cars if we wouldn't have cars we probably wouldn't have you know x x x x x horses probably slowed the creation of the wheel by a significant amount of time maybe like hundreds of thousands of years. Yeah, like if we didn't have an animal to ride long distances on, then yeah. that would probably would have come online a little bit quicker. Way quicker. Mm-hmm. So it's so fascinating. So the tools that we choose to use are the ones who will fundamentally be that direction of the metaverse versus the one way that we will live in. And again, back to uniquely human things, tools are almost uniquely human, specifically tools that we create. You know, there are obviously like birds and monkeys who use like sticks and like jam into things, right? Mm. But to build a tool and to envision a tool that doesn't exist and then to go with it and to see it pick up steam and to get adopted by blah, 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 blah is crazy. And then if you go a little bit more abstract to then go into the discussion around social media algorithms, the way we structure society, so political systems and economic systems are just tools. They're just mental tools. It's a tool or money. It's like, those are all just tools of agreement that we have. And some of them have internal characteristics that are better and some of them have internal characteristics that are worse. And so for simplicity, I define things uh, better and worse based on uh, efficiency of energy simply because I think the, the, the shortest, if you don't get quantum, the shortest uh, distance between two things is a straight line. Mm. So if you have to have multiple interactions to get to something, it's less efficient. Let's just say it's less good. Mm. Not that we're all running to the end of life, but... Uh, <laughs> But hopefully tools help us save time. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then looking at this from social media. So there was a vision of the internet which was wild and decentralized and clunky and messy. And then these front ends essentially came along, used the technology of the internet, put it behind a content wall and said it was just, but it's just the front end of the technology, the thing you interacted with, like the pretty images to make it less clunky. And from there, they essentially created these portals in which they owned everything that had happened. And then they created the algorithms, the tools, the means at which you were going to get shown content. This is the concept of of Web 2. This is Web 2, yeah. But what that means is that our reality since that, you know, 20... 
really, again, you know, MySpace was pretty, pretty chill about it. It really was with Facebook kind of like taking off that 2012, 2013 timeframe when they really blew up and that it got adopted by a lot of our culture that we entered into a new tool reality. And what was tragic is that the incentives of that tool reality, their customers are not us. So their algorithms are not working for us. They're working for their customers. Their customers are the advertisers. So we are the product Mm. of the tool. So there's never been a more clear example of we make the tools and the tools make us because we have literally are the product. We are the thing that's getting paid for, for the what we think we're receiving. And we are trading our most valuable asset. So if, if time is the most finite thing we have, the thing I would go is a little bit more, a little bit less finite or more finite is focus time, attention. Mm-hmm. And we're trading that for things that we probably don't care about, but that hijack some of our dopamine systems. And then we are using our, so that's that's happening, right? And then we're also buying products that we never wanted or needed. But because of all of this like hijacking that's going on, we still purchase them, which is, you know, putting more strain on the environment, using more of our energy and resources. And what's fucked up is it's a prostitutional model if you look at it. But at least like a body prostitute gets paid when they get fucked. Like we aren't getting anything from this. Yeah, we're getting little dopamine hits of cat videos or whatnot, which can you know bring some joy, but a cat brings way more joy. Yeah, it's having a so addictive. It's so addictive. It's like I mean, I I took like a year off, had my team handle my Instagram because I felt like I needed to be on it, which is a whole other like thing of like drawing in so many people on it with the community effect. That in order to, it's like where advertising is. Me as a small business, like where do the people live? I have to go there, and so I go in there and like create some content. It's fascinating. Like I'm a really aware dude. I have the tools. I have you know, the practices to not get lost and like really take control of my own focus and attention. And I'll go on my timeline and I'll just be like needing to, it's hard for me to rip myself and disengage from it because it's so addicting. And it, there is really no value. I mean, there's a little bit of value, but it's become like with the quick hits that you're just, you're not even really engaging with the person or the content. It's literally the dopamine and then the next one. And so you're just like, how can I get as much of this as possible? And they've created that. It's just really devastating and it's interesting to see what's going to happen long term with this for sure and the the thing that scares me the most is like i'm very much like a technologist so i'm like i'm pro technology the thing that scares me is that the incentives of them are not aligned with the incentives of us Mm. if they were i would be less worried about us integrating into it but like we are literally the energy the our attention our most sacred asset or one of the most sacred assets is what's being sold for nothing, mm. for things that you won't remember the next day. Mm. Yeah, that is like that's in, that to me is like a tragedy. And when you asked about like podcasts, uh, to go back to kind of like I think the basis of the question, it's difficult to grow podcasts because we were talking about how there's a lot more podcasts today, mm. but it's hard to get traction now. Mm-hmm. I feel that. Podcasts are very difficult to grow because there's no native discoverability feature within podcasts. And so people move and they think they have to do the Instagram, the Twitter, the blah, 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 in order to grow their podcast. Unfortunately, that's again, pushing the power back into these like hyper-centralized advertisers. And when you're trying to bring them back to your podcast off platform, off where their ads are, 
they don't really want you to do that either. So it doesn't even like work that well. It's probably built into the algorithms it's, it for is, it 100%. not click, click this link. Like you have the words, click the link in bio to X, your thing's going to perform worse. Wow. Because you're taking it off platform, which yeah. is what they don't want. Yeah. Even I've noticed even with um, like the real feature in Instagram and, and with they're competing with TikTok now. So how that shifted Instagram's like algorithm so much and yeah. they're like putting so much energy into the real portion. And then they promote it even more if you create the content natively on the app, which it's crazy, all the tools, like it's so overwhelming. It's cool that you can create a piece of content from your phone and it make it like so uniquely different with music and overlays and it's like all right there. Mm -hmm. But if you're not building it on the phone, on their app with them taking more attention from you, then it's actually going to perform worse too. Yeah, for sure, dude. And they even pay creators now to do reels on Instagram. Like a bunch of my friends are just getting paid just to post a reel. Like straight from Instagram? Just straight from Instagram. Wow. Yeah. They're competing that much with, yeah. with TikTok. It's yeah. such a freaking just battle, huh? Yeah, it's the attention. Again, it's it's one of our most sacred. Like this is such a valuable thing and we give it away for free. Mm. We don't, for some reason, we value this more than $5 for a Patreon and no ads. For some reason, we give away, our, like, and I've done the math on this, dude. Like when I launched my first episode, if it would have, if I would have sold it as a normal ad-based episode, I would have needed 600,000 downloads to make the amount I made on this new media model system I'm building. Mm. 600,000 downloads at two minute, 1.2 million minutes, 69 ads, 69 years of time, hmm. of collective time. Go to Rogan. I did the math on his once, like super conservatively of what I think it was. And he has spent over a year of his time, of his like waking hours, recording podcast ads. Recording po just podcast ads. Assuming he gets it right on the first take. Uh. And assuming he does a different one for each episode. Yeah, so there's probably some like repeats, right? There's ton. I've never yeah. met anybody who ever does it right well, on the first day. Yeah. But again, he probably reuses them Reuse too. So them, I'm yeah. kind of washing both those okay. out. But a whole year of his life. And then when you do of all of the time listened on all of the ads of all in his episodes, it's something like 20,000 years of collective consciousness. And that's one podcaster, which has the least amount of ads of any type of media. So you think about the Super Bowl. You think about a TV show, which is 10 minutes of ads for every TV show. You think about all the TV shows going on right now in this moment, how much collective time that we could be used on things that we fucking care about that give us joy or that help build a better future. And we're selling that for free for, for things we won't remember the next day. Us as, as, as consumers, as the consumers. We're, we're, we're giving our most precious asset away, away. for free. And, and what's even fucked up is because the podcasters don't really care about our most precious, precious or podcasting is actually the best. So let's just say the, the media creators, like podcasting has the highest CPM, so it puts the most value. But again, CPM is cost per thousand views. Average podcast, which is literally one of the highest in the entire industry, is $20. So what is that? Like a 0 0.2, 0 0.2 cents for every, for your entire attention for during that time of ads. So like oh. that's crazy that that's how much they're, and that's the most valuable one. You go to YouTube, it goes down. You go to TV, it just crashes. And so they are, again, which is this horrible thing, but it's because nobody is directly feeling the pain. We think it's this efficient model, but really it's-, it's Well, it's showing really up in mental and emotional health crisis that we're facing, mm -hmm. people navigating life without fulfillment, without joy. They're just feeling like just no life. They're, they're just going through life in this autopilot, just glued to their TV, glued to their screens, not ever actually- living mm -hmm. and they're just giving it away and all these power structures that are feeding on that energy are making so much money and that's oof it's intense to it's super feel intense. into it it's really intense so 
I know that you're really passionate about solving this issue. Like, obviously, it's a huge, huge at scale thing. Uh, but what are the, some of the solutions? I know you're big into the crypto space. You talked a little bit about the the project and the way you've structured your podcast, which is really cool. One of the first people to actually build a podcast on the blockchain. So talk a little bit about you. Talk a little bit about Web two. Talk about um, Web three and blockchain and the technology, like uh, kind of wider view of how that can really shift what we're talking about, and then maybe get into some of the specifics on how you're showing up and how it works with what you're doing with your podcast. Sick. And let's give a shout out to what is your podcast so everybody oh, who's yes. listening. Sky King's Mental Playground. If you want to listen, go to skmp.supercast.com. Uh, you can subscribe there, listen on audio, or you can go to Remark. So if you go singular.rmrk.app, that is the NFT marketplace where all of my podcasts are hosted. You can listen for free there or you can buy one if you want. Dope. Yeah, that'll be in the show notes as well. Sweet. So if we step back a little bit, there's a huge movement in Silicon Valley right now and with a lot of creators. It's like, oh, I can just build a Patreon. The problem is, is subscription-based media was actually the first business model of media. Second came advertising. The reason why I paused there for a second, because I just realized, like, I don't know if this is necessarily a business model, but obviously government, like state run as in the church and, or government were obviously the first business model of media, you know, when like the, the Catholic church would essentially just tell people what was in the Bible because nobody could read. Uh, <laughs> that was the first one. <laughs> taking it, taking it back. Yeah. But then I guess that was a business model too that made a lot of money. But in modern history, the first was a subscription-based model. And even during that time, advertising had a lot of influence, like around 1914, like things were getting really hectic because the it was really clear that the advertisers were, were really the client. But it, it went out of control and what has allowed for this business model to take over our attention, take over our ability to understand. It's not people like to blame Facebook. They like to blame technology. But again, the structural tool of the business model of advertising, back to when I was talking about, you know, tools don't start physical things that are these social ideas that we construct. The way we decided to construct media and how it will be made sustainable really came online in the 40s with FDR and this guy, Henry Ways. He is, oh, Henry Lou, sorry. He was the founder of Time Magazine, Fortune Magazine, and Life Magazine. And he wow. went to FDR, yeah. Heavy huge, hitter. Heavy hitter. Heavy hitter. He went to FDR and he was like, look, you have these conservation corps going through and building America. You have this massive war effort. You have all of this stuff you want to happen. And you're getting all this flack because nobody can hear about it because people, it's, you know, very tight times. It's World War II. People aren't willing to pay for media. And so they basically did a deal and a lot of crazy tax shit happened under FDR. It's really interesting to look into. I think in history, we tend to brush over FDR because we're like, oh, World War II, like we won, blah, 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 blah. Mm. Like that's when things got really wonky. Like he had three and a half terms, you know, like a lot of stuff that isn't supposed to happen happened during that time. And a lot of conspiracy theorists likes to go back to that a lot because it's when a lot of the banking system changed. Mm. Um, but one other thing they did in the area that I'm focused on is they took something that advertising up until that moment, even though it was crazy powerful, even in 1914, it was still super powerful. You can go read The Brass Check by Upton Sinclair, one of my favorite books of all time, a book that absolutely changed my life. And that's, that was in 1914. So 1940, still later, he went in and they needed more power to spread more news. They took advertising, which at the time was something that you were taxed on. The money you spent on advertising was considered taxable. 
and they switched it to make it pre pre income. Mm. So then you could use it as a business expense, which at the, at the time, the only business expense that existed was research and development. Wow. And that essentially created a massive subsidy at which we then built products that nobody wanted, sold them to people that didn't need them for pennies on the dollar. And that was like the birth of advertising because it didn't cost anything. Mm. And then you built this whole model of media of like, oh shit, businesses are going to want to spend this so they pay less in taxes. It'll at least get a benefit to them. And we can just sell the eyeballs back to them, to their, to their people. And that, that was the tool. That was this concept. That was the technology that then birthed the way that we structured Facebook, the way that we structured Instagram, the way that we structured Snapchat, and the way that we structured all media until podcasting came because it was so, in, so leveraged. Because Rogan reaching the same amount of audience as CNN or the Washington Post had three people working for him. So when he loses an advertiser, who gives a fuck? Because no one's getting fired. Mm. You know, if Bezos gets mad or if the Washington Post loses a big advertiser because they say ivermectin's good, like 50 people lose their jobs. Mm. That's serious. That's some serious influence. And so mm. that was this big transition moment. It's tragic because podcasts through these networks who are buying up podcasts and consolidating podcasts, they have way more leverage because they think of the advertisers as their client because they are the ones who are footing the bills. Mm. So it'll be really interesting to see what plays out. So going into what I'm building. So if we just keep applying the same technology of that business model of media, of that like prostitutional model, we will just end up in the same place continuously. And I was at a conference, Ethereum Austin during South by Southwest and the Sandbox co-founder, Sandbox is a pretty popular metaverse. Uh, at the end of his slide, he had a picture of the entire ecosystem. And in the culture section, all that was listed were different brands who had paid to be there. And that is what they considered culture. Mm. This is one of the things that the Ethereum people like really have wrong is now that they got the eyeballs, they think, oh, just go back to how we monetize, which is advertising. And that's what we've always done. That's what we've always done. Mm. I've heard that model called elegant. It's fucking trap. Well, I was like so bummed when I saw that because I really think like Web3 plus podcasts are this awesome media landscape to try a new business model of media, which is what I'm trying to build. And I think, so if, you know, the first version of subscription model, the second version was advertising. People right now are thinking we need to return to subscription. They think it's better. It's going to work, but we're not going to beat Facebook with Patreon. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, even me as a creator, like I was like, I'm going to create a, a, a supercast for my podcast and people are going to come in. It's like people just, it's the network effect. They're going to be where all the content is, which is what Facebook, Instagram, these big behemoths own. So it's hard to even entice them with no advertising because they sure. just don't even see it. Well, they don't understand the cost of advertising too. That's mm -hmm. why I like kind of go through that whole like, this is how much time we've given up, your most precious resource. Like they don't understand that it's costing them so much more than what $5 a month costs them. Mm. And there's also the friction, you know what I mean? Having to take out your credit card, put it in. So we're, I'm trying to retrain people. And also, but again, the way you do that isn't going to be like, it's bad, it's bad, don't do it. Like that never really wins, you know? It's like the That's puritanical energy stance. into the pendulum. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And instead, I want to build a new way. And it's the gamified business model of media. So the first thing that we're building right now with Stoa and what I've kind of done a proof of concept for with my podcast is what I call meme farming. So there are people who listen to every episode of your podcast. There are people who listen to every episode of Joe Rogan. There are people that listen to every episode of Aubrey. And those people 
have a very unique situation because they have actually built a skill of knowing your content better than anyone else. And that's a skill. And so I want to give those people the opportunity to make money from that, to be rewarded for their time, mm. to be paid for their most valuable asset. Oh, it's like the, the YouTube videos I see that is like chopped up from Joe Rogan's episodes of a certain thing with like some cool like B-roll in there and music yes. and they're just throwing it up on YouTube and I can watch it and consume it. But those people are just making money in the same model of advertising from views from YouTube. For sure. Wow, yeah, exactly. Cool. But so that what we would do is like when you're farming memes, so imagine like you, somebody's, let's say there's like 20 people listening to this right now. They're all competing to find the most fire clip based on like knowing you based on what's going to happen and can actually mint it and then own that section of the podcast. And then it goes onto a discoverability feature on our platform. So then again, we're trying to solve that discoverability problem for podcasts. And it's and also that marketplace is also one area to promote the podcast. So now what happened? So now the relationship was prostitutional. Now it's synergistic. So now you want as the creator and as the consumer, the same thing, which is to grow the podcast, to get more people to see what you've created, both as a curator and as a creator. So now we're facing the same way. So it helps with the growth aspect. But two, if you find those moments that are most likely to go viral, like this was my job for Aubrey and for a ton of other podcasters was to find the moments to go viral. And that's a skill. It's not luck. Mm -hmm. Complete skill. And like you could then go and just start farming your favorite podcast and making, you know, enough money to live on by finding those viral moments. And then they go viral. They can go viral on, on Stoa. They can go viral on Facebook, Instagram, wherever. But like, it's a skill to know, you know, what the first six seconds are going to sound like, how it's engaging enough to bring people through to the mm. rest of them. It takes a lot of time and work. And people, I think the community can go out and do that and get rewarded for it. So that's what I call meme farming. And that wouldn't, that wouldn't involve me as the creator you at all. You do nothing. But it, but it promotes my podcast And you make money more, on it. And you, I make more money. You get, they have to pay you a minting fee and then you get money on every resale that happens. Oh, wow. So you, get, you make money on it and it promotes your podcast. And the and my community that gets to make money as well, and everybody wins because the podcast grows. And the podcast grows; it's good for the people creating these memes because then they'll have more opportunities. Yep, and wow. be, the memes will be worth more money. That's dope. Yes, like it's crazy, and so, it's to, to be able to and again. This is like the reason why I think the economics really work here, and you don't need to have a Rogan sized podcast to make it, you know six figures, is because of how little they sell our data for for advertising because they value one listener at like point two cents, right? Whereas all you need if you have a thousand listeners is you just need $8 from each of them a month to make six figures. Mm. Wow. It's amazing. Like just like 96K, right? What's, so like the, what's the biggest challenge with this as far? Because like, it, I mean, I know it's like the structure, the energetic infrastructure, the business, the platform, like the technology, like building it all. But how do you get people to adopt this new way? Uh, and and bring it because you're competing with this this world behemoth collective systems that the energy of it and most people it's an education thing too they don't actually they're not aware of that and so how do you how, like what's the challenge with that how do you see that going over the next couple of years for sure so like I have a really specific vision on how I think I can make it happen the most challenging thing for me really right now is the building aspect of it because finding a solidity dev is incredibly expensive because like they're just in the last two years have come. Just the most sought after. Yeah, everybody employees. needs them and there's Everyone not that many them. out there. There's not that many. Yeah. That's what I've been struggling with a lot. So my adoption model though and how I'm planning on it 
is one, so my my company does podcast monetization for a ton of different podcasters, right? And I'm actually not going to start with my clients though, because I don't think that the technology would be easily adopted in the next year by their listeners. Mm. So I'm starting with Web3 native podcasts. Mm. The so, communities that would already be adopted to the technology know how to use it. Who have a wallet set up. Yeah. You know what I mean? Who already have that. Yeah. Who can kind of go in and interact. Mm-hmm. So I'm doing, and the way I'm doing that is, again, because of my job in podcast monetization, I have access to every single podcast email. I have a whole sales team built up who already reach out to podcasters to help them monetize their platform. I'm doing a ton of market research with my current clients and with my friends and with everybody to understand their pain points. And I'm starting to figure out the, 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 the adoption cycle. So if like picture perfect how it works is they start super crypto native, go after all of their podcasts and also the consumers, right? So it's like very easy integration. We start there. Next thing is I go to my clients. So once we've already kind of, you know, made the experience a lot more user-friendly and more people have come online to crypto because every day that goes by, more people come online mm-hmm. to crypto. We then start with their audiences. And a lot of them, because they tend to be a bit more controversial on the sovereignty front, have started moving into that blockchain space. Mm. So then I, you know, I start with my 17 clients. They trust us for monetization. They have audiences that are huge and outside of this current audience. So we go there. Once we have that, let's say we're in beta right now. And I've talked to most of my podcasters about this. They're very interested in the concept and like want to participate. So we get to there. And then now we have a ton of experience, a lot of momentum kind of going, right? So starting very niche, working my way up into my contacts. Then we go after the bottom from 100 to 200 in every category on iTunes and Spotify. The reason we go after them is because they don't make, they don't have enough downloads to sell to advertisements, but they have 5,000 fans that are obsessed with them who could totally be monetized if it was done in more of a fair and direct way. Mm -hmm. So then again, I have all of their emails. And so we go after them and, and we just start going for it because they are all looking to the question like I've put my soul into this I've put my life into this how can I get something in return yeah. and, and we have a very one we've we've tried it now you know with tons of different podcasts we've learned how to onboard them we've learned how to get them to adopt it and the key here is and this is like one of the little hacks I've done a lot with podcasters is we're never going to force people to have to listen on our platform so what that means is that it'll after you go through the whole experience, it'll still RSS, go into the normal RSS feed. And this is one of the ways I've helped people get more video views than, than audio views when they're like audio heavy but low on YouTube. Is the podcaster just going to talk about what's going on? Like, oh shit, these people are meme farming this. This just happened. Just subtly dropping the hints. And that's what I've had people do when they do video and they're trying to transition audio to video is because when you sit there and listen, you realize you're missing out on something that everyone else is going through. Like you have a really big itch to look into what is going on. Mm. So how do you do that now with the video? You just mentioned something that's happening live. Like, like oh shit, like, that was hilarious. Does. Exactly. Yeah. Check that out. Like what yeah. was the research? What's the video? What were they wearing? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Man, I'm so excited. This is a big vision. Yeah. I appreciate you sharing it. For sure. Let's let's widen the, the, the lens out a little bit with um, kind of what we're moving through collective because this is a, a specific thing and I love how you're showing up and yeah, really, I mean, this is like paradigm shifting stuff and it's cool that so many people are coming online to really shift these things. But if you widen the lens out a little bit and look through kind of the collective systems as a whole, politically, financially, socially, uh, with this this shift with this exponential growth of technology and I mean, just it, when you talked about dates, about 2012 is when f- like Facebook really took off and like cell phones, like the iPhone came out in 2010. 
So it's only been like a little over a decade that all of this technology. And so it's, I don't think a lot of people really comprehend and think about like, what is the world really going to look like in not only 10 years, 20 years, but like in just a few years, like how rapidly things are shifting. So what's your perspective with the shift that we're going through with all these things that are coming online? Like, how do you think it plays out? I know there's infinite potential realities, but what, what vision are you calling in? How do you see it playing out over the next, you know, coming years and decade? Yeah. So like uh, one of the things I've historically struggled with a lot is like a worry about the future and uh, an anxiety and then a regret about the past. I always wonder like, what if I made different decisions? Mm. And that is, I think something that is now coming into a, a collective, like I think we're actually living in the most schizophrenic culture uh, of our, of our, as of our known history. And it's because of this unlimited options and like applying this to dating, I, I didn't experience this personally because I've been in a relationship since like right when Tinder started. So I've never really experienced it. But the idea that we can choose mates by like swiping left, swiping right, choose sex by like swiping left, swiping right and having in like optionality out the wazoo. Like a lot of my friends who I talk to are not in relationships or just like it's a fucking land, like landmine out there. Like it's absolutely brutal. And even the people who are successful in that game, like aren't feeling very good about it. And that's just one thing, right? Like there's... Seven years ago, you couldn't be sitting in Central Austin and get like fire kimchi delivered to your door with the touch of a button. Mm. So what 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 unlimited options is doing to us is creating people who are in a constant state of worry and regret because they are only, you go on Instagram, you compare yourselves to other people's options, what they're doing, you feel bad about it. And then as you're using your own option, it's almost about choosing. And then once you get it, it's like not satisfying. Because it was the thing that's exciting is when you get to do the novel thing, get the choice, as opposed to actually experiencing the food, actually mm. experiencing the relationship. And so I've kind of built a framework off of that. And I think that's why this multiverse concept is so popular. And if you look through a lot of the popular movies of this time, they're also very like either multiverse or they're very schizophrenic. So you have like split you have uh, a new Disney movie just came out called Moon Knight, where he's mm. literally a schizophrenic. Like, yeah. like it's just crazy where it's popping off. And then you have the multiverse, which is just, it's living in all moments at all times. Those are the two biggest evils in the multiverse concept because if you're constantly in everywhere, you're nowhere. And so everything everywhere all at once to me was like this very beautiful way to demonstrate that. And the only answer to that question is through your commitment and what's, what's crazy is I don't even know if it matters what choice you make. But I think it's actually like how you choose to be once you make that choice. I know we were talking about this a little bit earlier and you're like to be present with it mm. and to, to be committed to it is, is how I think about it. Because when you can be present, and that's what being present is, is being committed to the moment, being committed to where you are now, not being the future, not being the past. Mm. And so as, as, as this whole system unloads, upon us, I, I think that the answer that we all, the answer that I've found, I think that I need the most, and maybe other people can relate to it, is to commit and then focus on being the best person I can be in that present moment each time. You know, it's the choice doesn't matter, but like how you behave in that choice. And I think, I think it kind of hits on some of the stuff we were talking about with the pendulum and with the reality transurfing, which I'm excited to check out. Mm. Uh, but 
But like the future's gonna unwind and your frequency, your energy, how you are actually in it is going to get you to wherever you're meant to be. And if you're if you're in if you're in hell, then you're just gonna keep going down. And if you're open, then you're gonna keep going up. Mm. I think. I yeah, know. no, I love that. And it's this concept of of the the, the frequency seems like so heightened and so accelerated that if you're not present, not working on yourself, not developing the tools, the meditation, the the coming back into your body, into this moment, there's so many options. It's so overwhelming that the only option is to be present. And if you're not actually doing the work each day to not be lost in your phone and all these things that are pulling you away from the present moment, all these options... You're not actually working and developing the tools to be present, which it's a discipline. It doesn't just happen. You can't just be like, I want to be present right now. Mm -hmm. You have to show up and work for it. And now it's more important than ever because if you're getting lost in lower vibrational like emotions, like like fear and anger and all these things, like you're going to keep creating more of that at an accelerated pace. And if you can really connect and learn to heal and let go of those things, which is you know what I feel very connected to, and I want to get your perspective on that as well, is how does like one more point on this because it's what you said about the metaverse and this is really cool because it's like an overlay onto our actual 3D reality where, you know, naturally you think about the metaverse and this might be a kind of a concept for some people that is too far out there to even comprehend. Uh, multiverse. The multiverse. Metaverse, multiverse, very different. Multiverse. Yeah, so yeah, is yeah. the metaverse the technology? The multiverse <laughs> is the actual experience of reality? Uh I one finish your thought and then let's go into that because I don't want to distract. <clears throat> well, that's what I was going to say. I was going to kind of connect them because yeah, yeah. the metaverse is the is the technology and basically getting you can like navigate the internet with an avatar in all these different ways, like infinite potential, which is what the internet is. Mm-hmm. But the multiverse is the overlay of this, and it's what you're talking about with the the infinite optionality and choices that we can make and the ease and the convenience of literally in my phone that I'm attached to, I can basically consume anything, create anything, go anywhere, purchase. It's like all right there, which is giving us access to this multiverse right now. Mm. And all of these different, and I think that's why the way I see the future unfolding, like the importance of community and finding your tribe and finding something you're connected to. Because there's so many, there's literally infinite number of experiences happening, like human experiences, at least 8 billion of them, like profoundly unique universes, all in that. And so choosing, we have the ability to choose what universe we want to live in, what we want to call in. And, you know, there's places in the world that are like really intense and dark and, you know, like North Korea, like I wonder what that experience is like so profoundly different than Mm -hmm. my experience now, all happening on the same planet in the same 3D plane of existence, but all different realities. Yeah. And so it's just interesting, even in this present moment, we have access to like infinite potential. Mm-hmm. And so the importance of, of healing and letting go and grieving the loss of this old way of being so that you can be receptive to where we're headed. But where we're headed is the unknown, which is fascinating enough. One of the human being's biggest fears, which is you know also known as the fear of death, mm-hmm. the fear of unknown. So where we're heading, I think a lot of people are struggling with that. And they're trying to hold on. They're trying to grasp. They don't know what to grasp because they're being pulled in so many directions. And um, yeah, I don't know where I'm going with that, but it's just interesting. You want to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, you just got to surf the wave, right? Yeah. <laughs> like stop grasping, right? And, yeah. And, and but it takes it takes healing, mm-hmm. and and healing. All I mean by that is it's not this like 
this medical concept. It's this, it's a psychological thing, like really connecting with your nervous system, connecting with the things that you fear and the experiences you've had that have developed those, uh, those stories, those mm-hmm. belief systems, those structures of who you think you are and how you relate to the world. How can you actually go explore the unconscious patterns of who you are and let go of the stories of who you think you need to be and what's been programmed into you, what success looks like, what happiness looks like, what the world looks like, what these structures we've been born into, like this, this media thing. Like I was, I was not aware that that's, it's just fascinating how it was, or, you know, I, I love that you took us back to the 1940s of that's kind of where Facebook started, you know, yeah. not just now. Um, but all this programming, and I don't think a lot of people really question we were born into a system that was just created by people that came before us. And we have the ability to create anything, really. Like we have, we're, we're on a spiritual level, we're infinite potential. And so how do we actually come together and create a new and more beautiful world? And a part of that is being able to let go of the old. Mm-hmm. And we even talked about this concept with the reality transurfing and the pendulums. And and I'm really connecting this with within my own life currently in the business I'm building. It's, it's like, are we being the bridge to try and like wake people up and pull them out? Or do we just build the new structure and just the energy and frequency of it, people will, that are called to it will find it. Because if we try and fix the old system, we're just putting energy into it mm-hmm. and it'll suck us in because it's such a behemoth frequency. Yeah. I think there's also an energy around, like it's so much harder to change the pendulum than it is just to create. Mm. You know what I mean? Like Grimes talked about this. Have you listened to the Grimes Lex Friedman podcast? No. Dude, I don't know if it's just because she hangs out with Elon every day or she is just a fucking genius. Like, wow. You have to get past her saying like every fourth word, but wow. I'll check it out. Listen, like she is bonkers in the best way. Graham, like, let's put that let's put that podcast in the in the show notes. Yes, please do. What's up, Graham? <laughs> <laughs> But uh, one of the things that both her and Elon have talked about a lot is, you know, don't try and destroy something you hate, build something you love. Mm. And that, that's so much more exciting because it, it's just, again, you're just, it's power versus force. You're just riding the wave of what you want to build in the world. And that's how you get people to adopt stuff because they want to go to where people are having fun. You know, that's something I think a lot about when what I'm creating. It's like, how do I build the most fun thing? The most engaging, exciting thing that has the fundamentals of it are at least a better system than the one we currently have. Like, that's what I'm thinking about, right? Um, one of the ways that I think healing is really, one of the ways I have helped, I've healed the most, I would say, and I know you just kind of went through this, is, is, is through fasting. And fasting requires discipline. And when I say fasting, I don't mean a food fast or a water fast. Like, obviously those things are, can be very beneficial, but any kind of fast that you choose to, to go on because what that does is immediately creates awareness of your patterns, of mm-hmm. the things that are controlling you, of the tools that are using you, who are building you, and you're not using them, creating with them, right? And so I know I would love to hear more about how the dopamine fast went, but I've just like noticed, and one of the things I've started recommending to people who can start to break out of this advertising system right now in, in small doses is just to make sure that you, the momentum of the morning that you wake up, like I would, if for as much as you can, keep your phone on airplane mode without looking at a screen or without looking at uh, 
a, a feed. It doesn't even, you can still look at screens, but it's really about being shown a feed. So even mm. in your, so keeping, you know, your phone in airplane modes, so you're not reacting to other people's texts, not reacting to things you're being sold to, not immediately being put into the system that then hijacks your system. You can give yourself some presence in the morning. You can work on or be present with the things that you want to actively do first thing in the morning. And so there's some ways you can do that. One, keep your phone in airplane mode until, you know, until at least you feel like you've reached some sort of presence in the morning. I like to think about until 11 usually. Obviously, it didn't happen today because we were coming over here at 10, but like that's usually like my goal. But I have a lot of freedom, right? So it doesn't have to be that. It can be whatever, whatever matters to you. As long as you feel the pull to your phone and you say no to it, just flexing that muscle. The other thing that I do is I use an app that my friend made, DK, the human shout out uh, to DK called Hidefeed. And so let's say I want to go put on some music. I can go on YouTube and it hides the all of the ads, all of the other videos, all of the things the algorithm is trying to feed me. And I can just go in the search bar and write lo-fi. And then the video I want, I can just press enter on. So you're or not I'm getting pulled with not all getting pulled. advertising. Go on Gmail and it doesn't show anything on Gmail, but I can go and search for the specific game I'm looking for or I can go to compose and just write. Go to Instagram, shows nothing. I can just post something on Instagram. So you can have a creation wow. moment. So you can get, you can start the day with creation. That's beautiful. And that's, again, it's, it's a minor fast you can add to your day that I think makes a huge impact. Because I think that initial, at least for me, the inertia when I'm doing that, presence, the happiness, the resolve in which I approach the day is completely different. Whereas if I wake up, look at my phone, check uh, NFT price, go on Twitter. And, and then just, it's just chaos. I'm just like completely on, then I have to do some sort of breathing thing to get back, even though I just came from what should have been the most restful period of time. Wow. It's fascinating how challenging that is. It's fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a little fun, I love it. And I, I appreciate that reminder because, yeah, I mean, I went on a dopamine fast, which was, I read this book called Dopamine Nation and it just, yeah, it was just connecting me with this high level, like, yeah, there's all these tools, all these habits, all these things. And I've had addictive tendencies, just like most people and um, putting it all under the umbrella of like my, my brain just wants dopamine. And so it's, it's not just like smoking cannabis or doing the nicotine gum or uh, going in the ice plot, like whatever it is, um, the phone, like, and, and it's, it's such an unconscious thing. Like you literally not in your awareness until you decide to say, Am I choosing this or is it choosing me? Mm -hmm. And it's so hard to just say no. Mm -hmm. And then I love what you said, flexing that muscle because it's like we only have so much willpower energy and it's usually stronger in the morning. And that's why it's so important to build that momentum early on. But even me, like I love what you said. It's even if I have something for work or if I'm on Instagram, I'm definitely going to check out that hide feed. Mm -hmm. Like that's really something I've been desiring because when I go on Instagram, I'm like, okay, I'm going to post a little one minute reel. I have something coming through. I like create it. And the next thing I know, I'm just like scrolling. I'm like, how, how did I get here? Yeah. And it's just these, it, the dopamine just draws. And it's, I mean, I don't even know how unaware I am and just how many automatic habits I actually have. That's why it's so important to just continue to, to question and show up and find balance. And I love the airplane mode. I mean, I definitely need to get back on that because I've noticed if I just wait a few hours, and I go meditate. I read a little bit. I have a paper journal, which mm -hmm. I got I got away from because even my, I like doing a digital journal like on my phone and stuff because it's so easy and I can type faster. But anything that I go on my phone for to do like a self development slowdown practice, all those buttons that are like habitually there, like oh I'll just click on Instagram. I'll check the price of crypto because that's moving so fast. Mm -hmm. And 
Maybe I need to move some money around, which I never really actually do. I just look at it and it just gets dopamine. It's really fascinating, man. Yeah. Yeah. And dude, I mean, and that's why I love fasting. And again, it could be a coffee fast. It could be a dopamine fast. It could be whatever. Because to follow the thread of this conversation, we create the tools and then the tools create our reality. Like then they create us. And that's not probably the best way to do it. You know what I mean? Like we should be, use the tools to create. Mm. We're partners with the tools. But again, this is where advertising is so sinister is the algorithms are actually now creating our reality off of incentives that we didn't agree to. It's not like I can go and choose and yes, every nail the hammer works for, but you know, I can go grab a screw driver if I want, if it's obviously not an, a nail. If you take a more extreme example, if I'm trying to plaster a wall, like I'm obviously not going to use a hammer. But we don't have that option right now because our entire system, the technology of which we have built our attention on is one that is for free taking our most valuable resource and then giving us back ways in which we want to view the world all based for the customer, which is not us, but is the advertiser. It is really bad. <laughs> it's, just, it, it's inefficient, ineffective. It doesn't make sense. And it's not building the future that we want anyway. And if we could just make that one change, that simple shift, it's not going to be perfect, but at least it'll be aligned. Mm. Yeah, man, it's beautiful. I, you talked about the incentive structure, right? Because there's this natural, and I'm excited to get your perspective on this because you, you've talked about some different conspiracy theories and some stuff I've never even like, has never been in my awareness, like not the mainstream conspiracy theories, like you really go deep into some of this stuff. But the concept of these evil people at the top that are pulling the levers and power and control. But then there's also this idea, which I, you know, I don't know if that's true, but then there's this, this other like more easily believable and more accessible uh, understanding that the incentive structures that we've built into our systems of society uh, create the, the system that is, you know, full of, of greed and power and control. And so it's not necessarily any one evil person, but the way that our systems built, it's literally the, like a public company, the fiduciary responsibility of the board representing the shareholders, which is us, is the bottom line mm -hmm. and making more money. And so if they're not making more money, it's actually bad. And so it's the incentive structures that we built into our actual system create this, you know, this train that we're going seems straight off a cliff of just consuming everything until we have nothing left to consume. So I'd love to hear your perspective on that. Like, what do you think is the issue? And yeah, moving forward, what, what, what shifts and what can shift? Dude, like, I think, I think that you hit it right on the head. So I used to work, so in our culture right now, specifically our culture, but in culture at large, you know, it's about half the population who thinks that pharmaceutical companies are the most evil companies in the entire world, full of evil, you know, Scrooge McDucks, like horrible people. I worked at one of the biggest pharmaceutical companies for three years. There's 40,000 employees. You know, I worked with hundreds, if not thousands. They shipped me off to a different one too. So I've been in two different pharmaceutical companies. I've never met someone who wasn't caring about healing the patient. Every mm. single person I worked with wanted to help patients. All of them were good people. Wow. But the tools which they had to help patients, the system that they had wasn't a great system. And so like, I really think that most, and like obviously 40,000 people, there are definitely some not good eggs there. Mm. But the um, like, I think if I can honestly think there's like one of them that I can think about, he ended up 
going on to Trump's cabinet though, which is hilarious. Um, but uh, but literally, like it's 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 insane because an example of this is there was this old paradigm of calories and diabetes, which is crazy because we've always known that you know insulin is creating the pancreas as a response to carbohydrates. Like that's what we're taught, like from day one. And so at this other company, not the company I technically worked for, but when they shipped me out to another one to help them with their marketing, um, they're giving out all these handbooks that had like food calories at fast food restaurants. So people can know the calories that are in fast food restaurants. They're giving it to like diabetics. And I was like, why are we doing this? It's like, oh, we want to give something to like help the patients. I'm like, but this doesn't have carbohydrate. What's the point? Like that doesn't matter to what they're like, that might help for weight loss, but doesn't actually help with insulin resistance. And they were like, yeah, but I think we just like printed a bunch of them. <laughs> like you might as well use them and at least it's like something. And I was like, oh yeah, that, that's not. It's almost, sometimes doing nothing is better than something. You yeah, know it I seems mean? like detrimental because then even you're giving them permission to eat fast food. Yes. Like and, why are we even letting them think it's okay to eat fast food? Yes. Well, the, the idea for that is that like, this is what they're going to eat anyway, mm. is the idea. So like, let's help them out there. But you, you have to, in these organizations, you have to do something. You can't do nothing. Which that again is at itself, to, it's this embedded growth obligation that you're talking about. Because mm-hmm. if you do nothing, which might, you don't, we don't, I, I, my educational background is in uh, economics, behavioral economics, but also focused on um, kind of econometrics and multivariable regressions and stuff like that. And like, it's so difficult to figure out what input creates the output. It's so complex. We live in such a complex world. So many different variables. So many different variables. So these huge systems that must grow have to look like they're doing something because if they're doing nothing, then you think you're not working. Even though you have no idea if what you're doing is leading to the impact you think it is. And then it's just a huge political game to say that the thing I did made the impact, which we have almost no idea. It's so difficult. Causal relationships are so difficult to actually find. Like Mm. it's so impossible. But it's like we have this hubris that like, because of the whole political system that comes from these huge corporations, because they must grow every quarter. They must then show that they're working. They must be doing something. And then they must show that they're doing something made an impact. Which again, all of that is just a narrative. Mm. Very little. And a lot of bias built into that too. Pure bias. Yeah. Again, it's a political system. They're fighting for themselves. Wow. So it's, and again, that's like, that's all of this stuff is downstream of that, what you talked about with the embedded growth obligation. And it's just like, and that then that becomes okay, cool. Well, we have these potential tools called vaccines. Let's we've been trying them out in cancer. It hasn't really been working because the toxicity can be somewhat hard to manage with continued dosing. And that's all happening, right? And it's like, oh shit. Well, we can make stuff really fast now. Let's just do it. At least we're doing something. Maybe it'll work. You know. And we don't know what the long tail of like the, the effects even, you know, 30, 40, 50 years from now, like on culture, on mm-hmm. humans, on society, with like all the variables that you're talking about. Even yeah. now we're realizing stuff that was scientifically proven to be the way it was in, you know, the early 1900s is the long tail of like affecting our health and the obesity problem. And like, what was it? The I think the court case with them, like the government hired these two scientists and one of them had uh, this idea that sugar was leading to obesity and then the other one was fat leading to obesity and they had they put together like all this data and they they presented it and they realized that fat was the enemy so everything went low fat Mm -hmm. but that's not the case like fat's actually very important for energy and sustainability and the sugar is actually causing obesity because it turns it into turns it into fat in the Mm -hmm. body 
is a, a long tail of that. Like everybody thought this is the right choice because of the limited data that we had, that they can't actually put in all the variables and the bias of the of the scientist that was doing the study actually took out some of the data so it would fit his narrative because he wanted to win. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, yeah like the Harvard sugar trials, right? Yeah, it's just a... Uh, that's, that's, that's one of the tensions I talk about a lot is this tension between centralized and decentralized systems. And I... I tend to lean more decentralized, though I see a lot of value in centralized systems. But one of the issues with centralized systems is exactly what you just said. Once they make a mandate, it takes years for it to actually filter into reality. And then the idea of shifting that mandate to a more correct mandate, because they're going to be wrong every time we're going to be imperfectly right. Mm. We'll be directionally right over and over and over again. You can't make those subtle shifts because the whole ship is now moving this like, and for those you can see, I'm really pushing my fist out. Yeah, if you want to watch the, the video, we don't have video here. But that, would have, <laughs> yes. that would have been a good time to yes. convert some of the audience yes. to video. Exactly. The whole shift is like pushing these people outwards into, into this moment. And then it's really difficult to turn a ship. You know mm. what I mean? It's not a car or a plane. It takes a lot of movement. Uh, and that's what we're going through right now, right? That this massive paradigm shift from this Newtonian Cartesian view of reality where it's physical, it's reductionist down to, I have to be able to uh, observe and track. And it, it, we don't really bring into our scientific study, this transpersonal, um, this, this spiritual, this, this energy, this quantum field. And so thankful that we're getting to a point where a lot of this stuff's coming online and, and I'm learning a lot about it. Like, you know, circling back to the early conversation about the podcasting, like a lot of this stuff and this paradigm shifting studies and information is coming through and we're learning about it as a society from these podcasters and these amazing thought leaders that we have access to now that don't get a voice within this mainstream because the way our system is built is the people that are older that created all these scientific studies with that kind of created the, the structure and framework of how reality is don't want to be wrong. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's fascinating. I think, I don't know the actual numbers of this, but it's fascinating to see. I was, I was, I don't know where I saw this, but as these people in academia that have these studies and these papers and they've kind of done the thing that trickles into society, it's not until they actually pass away that the people underneath them have a voice because they're so nervous about this hierarchical structure to question the person that created and, you know, we're standing on shoulders of giants, but also we continue to evolve and learn and bring in new information. But as a collective society and culture, we're still stuck in this old paradigm. And it's really cool to be alive now. I say what a time to be alive that we're going through this shift and this paradigm shift of bringing in the energy, the frequency, the, the quantum, the creation, the, the infinite potential of reality it's so much more than physical. And science is actually starting to have studies that prove this, but the mainstream narrative, like if you talk to somebody on the street, they, they have no idea because what they were taught in their textbooks when they were younger is this kind of really physical reality and how it works. For sure, because again, that was again, the tools that we had at the time were the things like, we never built the tools to measure what you're describing because we focused on weight like physical observation. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Like that was the the mechanism which we built the tool. There's this dude, he's based out of, I think, Glasgow, University of Glasgow, if that's a place. His name is Lee, it's Professor Lee. I can, I can send it to you if you want to put it in the show notes, but mm -hmm. he's built this thing called a computer. So like right now, our only concept of a computer is silicon-based computers, which is these like 
chip-based computers. That's what we think a computer is because that's what we have known a computer to be. But he's built something, a computer, where he can actually print by putting a bunch of different chemicals together, print new molecules. And, and it's, it's a completely different framework of what it means to build a computer. And so he can now print a vaccine. He can print Advil. He can print this stuff through base chemicals. And his, his goal is to be able to get to print life from base, from the most basic. And when you say computer, this isn't like a physical like operating system like I'm used to. Not just the hardware. It won't be like a screen. Like, no, no, no. It's yeah. like actually, it's like, I don't know what it looks like. Yeah, it's interesting. There has like, what's to be the user hardware? interface, right? Yeah. There has to be user inter- interface, but the, the actual thing being done, if you take Stanford's like CS101, it'll help you like understand what a computer is a lot better. I recommend it to anybody. Is that it's a basic, book? Uh, it's an online lecture course. It's okay. free. So like Stanford University, there's CS101. Uh, or maybe it's, yeah, CS101. And I might be butchering this a little bit, but a computer is basically where you get input, output, input, output, right? So it could be something. So a lot of times people think about computers being very simply. And we just have these silicon-based computers where we're actually interacting with it. And we have this UX and it's networked. Mm. And that's a huge part of our computers, this networked concept. So that's what we think a computer is. But really, it's just something where you do something and then something else happens, which is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Computing power. So so I'm just like, I can't even comprehend what this is. The The chemicals computing with some type of hardware interface to communicate with the chemicals actually creating something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, again, it's a, it's a strange concept and it's honestly, it's difficult for me to grasp as yeah, well. Yeah, right. Like it makes me want to go deeper into it. I've heard him talk about it for hours and it's still like, I, I want to see it. I want to play with it. Yeah. I want to try it, you know? What about this? I mean, I've heard of quantum computing, but how does that differ from the silicon-based computing? Because isn't that something that we're coming online with as well? Yeah, I mean, it's something they've been working on for a really, really long time. There's a, there's a really good Google documentary that they like self-produced on what they're trying to build. Um, I mean, it's still chip-based. It's still very similar. I'm not the it's right just the person. power of it. Yeah. It's like exponential. Yeah, it's weird because like they use all these like... Uh, like copper wires in it for some reason. Like it's beautiful. Like if you look at what a quantum computer and like how they're trying to build quantum computing, what it looks like, it's fucking beautiful. Like I highly recommend people go look at it. Just like look up Google quantum computing uh, documentary or video on YouTube or on Google because there's no other option. Uh, and, uh, but it's, it's absolutely <laughs> stunning. It will be. It's absolutely stunning. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I feel called to ask you about um, this concept of the, the, the singularity with, with technology and advancement and how we're creating this, this AI, uh, the ability for computers to basically process and connect information faster than like every human on the planet Earth all at once, like just that rapidly. And we get to a point where the computing actually starts solving problems that we can't even think of. And it gets to this point where it's just like runaway. Um, I'd love to hear your concept on that. And I'll just share my perspective with this because I feel this spiritual awakening happening, right? What, what does that mean? It's this, this understanding of energy and like what we talked about a little bit. And then we have this technological advancement as well. So we're overlaying these kind of spiritual energy quantum uh, concepts over our actual 3D reality. I mean, you think about the internet, the internet is access to the ether and it's access to infinite potential. And so what I see this this singularity concept of technology coming and then the spiritual awakening. It's just interesting to see that, like, is that happening in correlation for a reason because that's the only way it can happen? And what is it, you know, one of the stories I heard one of my friends talk about is this, 
this idea of you get to choose. Like, do we do we merge with technology and technology becomes conscious, and so we interact with it that way, or do we have this choice where we decide to stay present, stay not physical, but become energy and evolve that way, or we can embed ourselves with technology, and so humanity kind of forks into a technolo- technological civilization and then like a spiritual enlightened civilization, or do they come together? And it's just fascinating to, to, to explore that because, you know, and Charles Eisenstein talks about this with this collective like death rebirth process that we're going through. Like the baby doesn't know what it's like to, to be in reality. Like there's no way it can comprehend. And so he has this really beautiful article that he talks about collectively. We can't actually in this, this death rebirth process that we're going through collectively. And this is why there's so much fear around the unknown. There's no way for us to actually comprehend what the world looks like on the other side of this death rebirth process. Cause it's going to be a reality that we can't even connect with. And so is it the spiritual thing? Is it this connection with technology or is it both? Yeah. I, I tend to think more towards both. Uh, there's, there's a quote, and I forget who it's attributed to, but there's a quote that's basically consciousness is the universe trying to look at itself. Mm-hmm. And it's a paraphrasing of it. Yeah, because even like philosophy, science, spirituality, religion, it's all the same thing. It's its God wanting to know itself. Wanting to know itself, mm-hmm. right? And so like I tend to think, like I t- again, all on a hunch, none of this is verifiable at this point. But I tend to think that like we have been down this road many times before. And we haven't found the right tools that allow us to build the singularity. That the stories of religion and spirituality were just the beings before us who built it. That we are currently in one phase of it. And now we are just, our consciousness is now trying to become gods to be able to see it. And I think that we've been trying that for a few hundred thousand years. And things keep going wrong in the system. And I think it has to do with the structures that we set and the technologies we choose to adopt. It's like the collective free will that, yeah, like this collective psyche that we have Mm -hmm. and the collective unconscious. Like it wants to be seen. It wants to see itself. Mm. And so I think that we have a good shot right now of getting there, of building that, of becoming the makers, of becoming the gods, of seeing awareness, AI, true AI awareness, seeing itself a thing of our creation to what Lee Cronin, his name's Lee Cronin, to what Lee Cronin said of building life from first principles. Like, I think, I think it's just this cycle though of like, because for some reason there's an, an innate thing in the consciousness that just wants to see itself. And that just keeps repeating and repeating and repeating and repeating. So I think we're just on one of those trends and we're just, we're at a point where we're either going to survive the next hundred years and we're going to potentially like get to the next challenge. Or we're going to f- blow the fuck up and restart and restart. Cause I think that's what has just happened over yeah. and over and over again. Yeah. Yeah, it was just, I forget who I was talking to, but this, all of this, this new information coming out about, you know, even like the Sphinx and the pyramids, you know, I think I was taught when I was younger and the narrative was like, they're a couple thousand years old, but they're actually closer to like 15, 20,000 years old. And they're actually finding these civilizations that like predate like a hundred thousand years old. And then I forget who was telling me this, but there's a skull that they found that carbon dated. It's a similar skull to us. It's not like the homo, whatever, before homo sapiens, it's an actual like skull and it's dated 400,000 years ago. Yeah. And so I've always had resistance to this concept of evolutionary biology. Mm-hmm. Like it's so linear. Mm-hmm. Like we came from here and we're trying to find the missing pieces of how we got to here. But that's not how consciousness works. Mm-hmm. And it's fascinating how consciousness for us to have this 
experience a separation, we have to have a backstory of mm-hmm. where we came from. Yeah. And so we create this backstory of like, okay, the Big Bang, and then this linear thing of where we're at now. But it, it's becoming apparent. It's it's cyclical, mm-hmm. and consciousness runs in cycles. Like even you look at everything in the universe, like planets go around suns and the galaxies and even our atoms, like everything is in cycles. And so we're just reaching another level of this opportunity to kind of transcend our humanity. And when when you were speaking, it was what came to me was this um, like aliens and interdimensional beings. And I don't know how much you've gotten into that with like Mm -hmm. Stephen Greer. And it's like, there's this, documentary i forget what it's called maybe it's disclosure there's something on gaia um but i love the way he talks about aliens and interdimensional beings and transpersonal beings is it's a it's it's consciousness it's not these this idea of like the newtonian view of physical reality is like these aliens come from other planets on these ships and they arrive here but in reality they're they're evolved beings energetically that can phase in and out of 3d reality Mm. and so as a humanity on this planet, what if we're, you know, the the journey is to get to a point where we all of a sudden become interdimensional beings, which, you know, bringing in the reality transurfing and these concepts we're talking about, having the access and the technology in, imbued, because he talks about even these, these technologies that phase in and out, it's technology, but it's also consciousness. And it their technology is so advanced that it interacts with their consciousness. And so it's hard to even comprehend, right? We're talking about this world that we're going into. But as humans on this planet, we have this technology coming out and then the spiritual awakening. And what if we get to a point where it's now is the time where we have an opportunity to become a, a player and, and a, a race and a species that is interacting with the multiverse mm-hmm. in a real way, interp- yeah. interplanetary, not you know just going to Mars on spaceships, but what if we can like, connect and, and transport and we can do these things with our mind's eye and connection but really doing it like with our physical bodies like phasing in and out and imbuing with technology like that's that's really exciting when you start looking at that and why are aliens becoming so prevalent in all these sightings and stuff and they're phasing in and out it's like what if that's our path to become that and become a player in this interdimensional experience of consciousness mm-hmm. I mean do, have you done any time in, in VR and like rec room or any like metaverses? Mm-hmm. So I did a podcast with this, um, my friend, Sean, he is a uh, director of community for rec room, which is probably the largest virtual reality metaverse in the world. So people, you know, spend a lot of time in this place. There's, I think, I think they just hit like 63 million users. Wow. So a lot of, a lot a of, lot of, a lot of kids are spending a lot of time in this place, like hours and hours and hours a day. That's one of and those And they're things. building What's... this whole meta world you know, choosing to be able to physically change their reality in like real time, to be able to just paint, to be able to use these crazy tools to do whatever they want to build a world they want to see with very specific boxes they're constrained within, but pretty, but pretty flexible in what they can actually build and and what's, what's coming online. So again, these children, it's like your children are going, and again, you might raise them differently, but your children will have the option to have a world in which they are no longer limited by financial or energy resources in order to build the castles that they dream of. Mm. They can at five start to build castles. Entire and worlds. Entire worlds. And they can build worlds from five to 10. The times that we are, you know, playing sports or 
like skateboarding and falling. Like they can actually sit and build entire worlds, entire incentive structures of how they want to see a world and have it play out, have their characters run through it and, and then optimize for that. Like the creative unload that is about to happen upon the world is something that we will almost not witness if we choose not to enter because it's going to happen no matter what with the youth. And they are going to be native to the metaverse. I know a person right now, he's our age, but he spends eight hours a day in VR chat at, dressed up as this like anime female character. It's like Ready Player One. It's, like it's yes, already here. Without like the haptic initiation, but the mind is already there. Yeah. It's only a matter of time until that mm-hmm. all that comes online with the technology. Yeah. Wow. And especially when like, and like your child is going to be ahead of that comparatively to Caroline's niece, who now is seven, who grew up on YouTube, who from mm-hmm. two years old was on YouTube. So that's where they're being fed stuff. If we can build the metaverse with a different monetization system and we're not being fed advertisements in this space, like they can build castles in the sky, things that I only dreamt of as a kid. They can go on adventures with their little Pokemon friend and actually be there and talk to their friends in it and actually build this thing which is fascinating because as the world becomes more nerfy on the outside, they're going to get way more desiring for adventure on the inside in their mind. Mm. And, you know, it's really funny because I feel like the same community who's very like Psychonaut-esque is very anti-VR, which is hilarious because all it is is just the mental journey. Yeah, training the visionary space. Training the visionary space, exactly. Uh, which is our gift. And that's what, you know, the monks do with meditation and like these ascended masters. Like they... Like I was telling you about the hermetic philosophies I'm mm-hmm. getting into is these laws of the universe where people spend eight hours a day meditating to drop into the visionary space and be be so like because it's a muscle right like strengthening their awareness their focus their attention in their visionary space and their imagination like imagination can be trained like yes. the more you like imagine things like your dream space gets crazier you can visualize stuff you can call in like talking about this reality transferring it, it the imagination is what makes us uniquely god like mm-hmm. creating worlds in our visionary For space sure. and now yeah i'm just like i'm feel, oh, i'm starting to vibrate in my body like there's of course the shadow side of what that means and it's easy to look at it and be like oh like what's that going to do for their mental health emotional health stuck to technology like, I'm sorry, but we're already stuck to technology. Like, yeah. I, I can I can have that, like, judgment of it, but I'm on my phone for six, seven hours a day just not even realizing it because it's such an... We're interacting with it so much. It's just such a tool. And and this is... A, the phone is a tool for consumption. The metaverse is a tool for creation. And I love that. And this is the first time I'm really connecting with that. It's like training that that visionary imagination, being able to have the tool to create and... I mean, the natural worry is like, what if people get lost in that? But what if they're able to to create so much that it comes out and it, it really has this huge positive impact on our actual reality? Because we we are giving children this this freedom and this space to imagine a brighter future. Things that we can't even think about because we're so bogged down by the programming of. I mean, even me and you, like we're we're questioning reality. We're going deep into the rabbit hole. But there's still so many deep foundational stories of that we're that we're confined to because we it's in our unconscious. We haven't even looked behind. So this next generation having access, where what if they're not even confined to the the things that we believe so much about physical reality that they're able to just kind of step into this new way? I think they I think they 100 won't be. Yeah. And I like I'm challenging myself to be in that world more too because because what they probably won't have they'll have 
an abundance of like weird somatic knowledge, but they won't have the wisdom of the elders because we were forced to read Plato and Socrates and to see the failure of man and to witness Hitler's experience and to go through all of that in our history classes. And they won't probably do that in the same way because they're going to be creators. Mm. And so I want to be able to be there, you know, to help give a little bit of, 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 uh, of warning, <laughs> not guidance, but, uh, yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a big thing. Like the elders, we don't really have like strong elders in our like mainstream. No, we don't. They did never moved on to elder. They stayed King, yeah. the older generation, the baby boomers. I have a theory on that. I think it's because when they, when my dad was in high school, when they were in high school, they were told to just go under desks to prepare for the nuclear bomb. And so they had this huge existential crisis and like, fuck it, which is like why they don't care about the environment, which is why they don't think long-term, which is why they think quarter to quarter in their systems, which is why they've never moved on and why we had the oldest presidential election of all time following the oldest presidential election of all time. Why, you know, 90% of university professors are not Gen X when they should be by now. Why 90% of corporate leaders are not Gen X when they should be right now. Why the only influential Gen X population are entrepreneurs and artists because they were able to pave their own way. You know, Zuck, Kanye, Bonnie Vare, like people are changing shit. Like yeah. Elon, like there's no institutional of that because they never moved on. They've never become elders. They've never allowed for us to grow. So we've been stuck in their world and Gen X got fucked by it. Millennials are getting kind of fucked by it. Gen Z is just in distraught and is just kind of like in the consumption. And then this next generation is going to be the first ones. If we can have the wisdom to be, to move on to elders and to be guides, but not, dictators like they could have the future they could have the ability to, to do this to do the thing to build it man i'm like when you were just sharing that like my whole body lit up it's so cool to feel into that and it's it's fascinating to the gen gen x gen y gen z like who came up with those it's like it's it's almost the collective psyche knows that this is the death of an entire old way of being human and then what is it? The Gen Alpha is the next one. Is it? I have no idea. Yeah, we don't even know what it is. Yeah, but it's like almost the the timing. Like, who is the one that created the naming these generations to a perfect pinnacle of this death rebirth process? And I think that's a good place to leave it, man. I mean, I, I'm really feeling into like just the conversation we've had. There's a lot of polarity within it. There's a lot of you know early on talking about the the damage and the devastation of the models and the incentive structures we've created in reality, but I love that we got to this point where I feel inspired, I feel optimistic, I feel excited. And I think what a time to be alive where we actually get to experience, like right when the internet started to the point of this transcendence and where technology is headed and the singularity, whatever that looks like, whatever that means in the future, in the very near future, and just buckle up and uh, find a way to be present through it all. For sure. Thanks, yeah, brother. Thank I appreciate this guy. Yeah, is there any well. uh, any final words uh, for the listeners? And then you can share where people can find you. I know you did earlier, but yeah, anything else you want to share on that? Yeah, one, one final thing. So I did a podcast I'm super proud of. Uh, it's kind of wonky. And I, you mentioned like conspiracy theories that I was into. Uh, so essentially like this whole podcast where I broke down what happened on January 6th and not what happened here in the United States, but what happened on in Hong Kong. Uh, so I've been obsessed with um, Asian culture for my entire life. I grew up in Hawaii, convinced my parents to send me to China for like three weeks when I was in fourth grade. Seventh grade, flew alone to Japan. Uh, very into Asia for some reason. It just kind of always felt like home to me. 
So watching what the CCP is doing, I think they are, uh, I think there's about three genocides going on by them. Currently. Currently. Wow. North Korea is a CCP funded genocide. Tibetans are completely gone. Like they're completely under control now. The Dalai Lama is being uh, chosen by Xi, Xi Jinping. And then the third one being the Uyghurs. And during COVID, Hong Kong fell 27 years in advance of when it was supposed to. It's now under Chinese law. Every single democratic person was arrested on January 6th of 2021, the same day that the Capitol riot happened, but 12 hours earlier, 14 hours earlier. So so you think the Capitol riot was uh, smokes and mirrors for that to happen? No, I, I don't really don't think so. I don't think the Chinese government causes things like that, but I do think they're aware it was going to happen. So it was a very easy day for them to do because, you know, they're on all the message boards and yeah. it, you know, it wasn't quiet. That, that they got a good pulse on what's happened in the exactly, world. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but what is fucked up and back to like my mission and why it aligns with everything I'm saying is the New York Times... If you go back and you search January 6th or you search two of the other dates I talk about in the podcast and how this all came about, in the New York Times, it's not even the top 10 things that happened that day. So be careful where you get your news from because you're not the customer. Oh, beautiful. And we'll put that in the show notes as well if you want to send all that stuff to For me. sure. We'll get Graham. Shout out Graham. Shout out to Graham. Appreciate you, brother. Put all this amazing information in the show notes. Uh, is there anything else where people can find you that we want to put there? Uh, if you want to follow me on Twitter, Consumer Sky, that's where I'm most active. I don't really do Instagram as much, mostly just Twitter. And then, yeah, just skmp.supercast.com or go to the Remark app and check out the NFTs. You can listen to all of them there. More people listen as an NFT than they do on the podcast. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, love it. Let us know what you think of the podcast. Uh, really appreciate y'all. Remember to continue dropping into the heart and find presence in this you know crazy transition and community. That's that's really how I've found, and I know Sky here, finding community, finding tribe, finding presence, developing the tools to really navigate these crazy, exciting, all the things that we're moving through uh, to really find a place of, of joy within it all and non-attachment. And uh, yeah, love y'all. Peace. Peace.